Well, I want to get at this morning a, a dynamic that I think a lot of you are experiencing now when it comes to church life. Not all of you, but, but some of you. And at some points through the last few years, I've kind of been through myself as, as well. And it's that two things look very different. On one hand, you've got these great promises from God about the kingdom growth of the church, right? The kingdom starts like a mustard seed and then it grows into the greatest of trees and we expect the church to do this as the message of the gospel permeates out through the world. We've got promises like Jesus saying that as we fulfill the great commission, as we preach the gospel and as we make disciples of Jesus Christ, he says, surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. So I even preach this morning with confidence that Jesus is here and he's working through his spirit here. Uh, we've got promises in Isaiah that, that, I think it's Isaiah, that his word, when it is spoken and preached, it doesn't come back to him void. It's like the, the rain watering the crops. Am I right, Sandy? It's Isaiah? It's Isaiah. Okay. Like the rain watering the crops. Uh, it doesn't come back without producing something and doing exactly what God intended it. And so generally speaking, we expect the preaching of the gospel when it's done faithfully, the gathering of the church on Sunday morning, the church doing its work to lead to steady growth growth throughout the ages. We expect that baptistry to be full regularly, right, and have people in it who are being baptized. We've got pictures of what we think things ought to be going like because of those promises that Jesus gives to us. And then the church can go through a difficult time, like the last two years where there were great obstacles because of the pandemic, and look back and see that in, in two years we had, we had two baptisms, do you see the two different pictures, right? And so sometimes you can look at that and say, Jesus, you, you, really, you said you would be with us. Were, were you with us? It seems like the, de the deck is kind of stacked against us here. How do you grow a church when you can't even meet sometimes? So there can be this dichotomy between what the Lord has promised us and what we feel like we are experiencing that can cast some of us in, into a doubt. And I know we've talked about this at points sometimes behind the scenes, and some of you have asked hard questions. I've asked them to the Lord. How do you grow a church when things are like this? How do you keep a church growing when now, after the fact, it feels like it's over, but something like 20 or 30 of our members are not here right now and want to be because now they're homebound because of the way the pandemic affected their lives. So we've got these hard realities that we are butting up against and then at the same time, we have confidence in God's promises, and we know that he means what he says. And so we don't look to him and fault him. In fact, we look back and say, man, he has provided for us so richly and kept us alive and brought new people to us and all kinds of signs that he's not done with us. Yet what do we do at the end of the day when it seems like we're casting the gospel faithfully and a couple years have gone by without the fruit in return that we expect from that? What guidance does God have? It's almost like we, we have been promised new life, the new life of the gospel, taking root in people's lives. And we've been casting things the way the, way the Lord says. We've been going about that the way that he says. And for, for a couple of years now, we haven't seen the fruit that we expected. I bring that up because we are about to, to interact here with a character in the Bible who is in the very same situation. Uh, he expected new life that was promised by God he went about it using God's means, and then sometime later is looking back and saying, the new life hasn't come. What's, uh, what's going on here? Here's his situation. The new life for him, this is Isaac. 
The new life for him was, was a promised birth of a child. His father had been promised, through Isaac, your son, you'll have many offsprings. This means Isaac is going to have children. You can't have many offsprings. You'll have at least one child to produce them through. And so Isaac marries his wife, Rebecca, and there's a natural expectation. New life is going to come from this marriage. It's promised by God, right? So they go about things using God's ordained means. They don't try all this silly stuff that their parents tried. They just go about it the good old-fashioned way. And 20 years go by without the new life and the kingdom growth that they had been promised. And so they find themselves in a situation that maybe some of you find when we look at church ministry. God, we're doing things the way you said to do them. You promised new life would come if we do this. God, where is the new life and and what do we do? Do you see the connection between the two? So what we're going to do this morning, and I wish I could say I planned this, but we're going to close out our week of prayer by the text that just fell next in Genesis, which is going to show us just what to do in that situation when the new life we expected has not yet come. Let's look at Genesis 25, verses 19 to 21. Hear the words of the Lord. These are the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Pedan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The words of the Lord. Through Isaac's example and through Isaac's prayer, Our Lord calls us to pray persistently for new life in the church and never to resort to worldly tactics to find new life in the church. There's a little bit more backstory here than I gave you before. So so to review what I said a second ago, uh, Isaac and Rebecca, they have it promised from God that their union in marriage is going to produce children because through Isaac, many children are going to come. One of them is going to be the great Messiah that they are looking forward to who will conquer sin, Satan, and death for them. None of this can happen if they don't have at least one child together. And so they can say confidently, God has promised us children. We will bear children. 20 years go by, we find, and the children still have not come. That's the plot tension in the story. What Isaac does is he prays persistently for his wife. The Lord hears his prayer, and then Rebecca conceives. And this is not just any ordinary child that they bear. It is Jacob and Esau, twins in the womb. One of them, Jacob, is the father of the nation Israel. And so the work that the Lord does inside of her is not just conceive a child. That's miraculous enough, isn't it? He literally conceives the nation of Israel, the holy people of God, in her womb and brings them forth in earnest through her and through her body in this way. And so this work that the Lord does is much mightier then even they were praying for, they're praying for a child because Rebecca is barren. The Lord says, I will do a mighty work. I will birth my holy nation through this woman. And so there are years of waiting and then there's persistent prayer and then the Lord does a mighty work conceiving the nation of Israel within her. This is all set in contrast to Isaac's parents, Abraham and Sarah. 
Some of you were here uh, almost two years ago when outside we looked at the story of Abraham and Sarah when they were in the very same situation, right? They had been promised children, decades had gone by, the children had not come, and they do not do what Isaac did. Isaac prayed. There's no record of Abraham and Sarah praying about it. They tried something else instead. Some of you are familiar with the story. Uh, It was common in that day to, if your wife did not produce children, to take a concubine, a slave wife, and so Sarah actually got the idea, said, why don't you take my servant as a wife, right? And, and then she can bear children, and then the children will be mine. Doesn't this sound fantastic? Now, thousands of years later, we can look back and say, that's a terrible idea. But it was so common then, right, that it felt very normal to them, even though it was wicked before God. So they resort to the worldly tactics, the sinful tactics in the world around them, to try to bring about kingdom growth, to try to bring about new life. Isaac and Rebekah, in contrast to that, do not do anything differently. They don't corrupt God's plan for how children come. Instead, they just pray. So there's intentional contrast in these two stories. So we learn, in other words, from what Isaac does not do, which Abraham did, and we learn from what Isaac does do, which is pray. The point is, when seeking promised kingdom growth, don't use worldly tactics, do pray. That's that's the point of that little detail in that story. And so we're gonna take those one at a time this morning. First, we'll talk about we don't use worldly tactics to grow our church. And then we will talk about the weapon the Lord does give us for growing our church, and that is persistent prayer. So let's, let's look at the first one first. First point this morning is when seeking kingdom growth, Use the means that God gave and and not worldly tactics. Uh, Again, that point comes from the contrast with Abraham and Sarah who do use worldly tactics. It also comes from a comparison with Genesis 1 and 2. Now, I probably don't have to tell you in real world terms how this child was conceived, right? Husband and wife, you guys know how this stuff works, right? But it's easy to assume that and just think that's not a significant part in the story when the truth is the union of husband and wife and the creation of children through that means is actually God-ordained and that is listed in the book of Genesis. So, so Isaac and Rebecca are thinking back to these stories that are either told to them verbally or perhaps they have written record of, we really don't know. Back in Genesis 2, we read, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, right? So God's pattern for how this pairing off works is man and wife, not any man and any woman, but husband and wife together. Not man and concubine, right? Man and wife together. Not only that, but back in chapter one, we have the blessing, be fruitful and multiply, cover the earth and subdue it. So it's easy to assume But we do need to remember that the means they went about to create this child were prescribed by God in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That's important because it took 20 years to conceive the child, and that means they must not have given up on the natural means, right? You catch my drift, but they must have continued through these natural God-ordained means if the child eventually came. And so we take from this, because they followed the instruction of Genesis 2 and Genesis 1, husband and wife together, and because they did not do what Abraham did in seeking a concubine and corrupting God's plan, that what the church must do is just use the means that God gave to bring kingdom growth 
and not compromise with worldly sinful tactics around us. We use God's means, we might even think of them as ordinary means, and we don't borrow sinful tactics from the world. So that means that our plan for church growth, our strategy for church growth, is gonna sound kind of boring to some people. Some people would expect that we have some grandiose thing that we have concocted and we're gonna do this and we got a three-phase plan and we've got it all mapped out. No, our plan for church growth is just to keep doing the things that Jesus taught us to do. Uh, preach the gospel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Gather on Sunday on the Lord's day to worship him. These plain, ordinary feeling things to Christians that the Lord gave us, those are our strategies for church growth, doing the very things that Jesus taught us to do. This is a great burden, I think, lifted off the shoulders of the church and even off the shoulders of the leaders of the church because we do have to be wise in how we do some of these things. We got to use biblical wisdom, but we don't have to come up with some new plan that no one has ever come up with before. We don't have to be as innovative as the folks over at Silicon Valley and the great entrepreneurs of the world just to build the church of God. We can just use the means that Jesus gave us because he already told us how to do it. Go forth to all nations, preach the gospel, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. If we can walk in these things, we are growing God's church his way. This is actually one of the core values of our church. Uh, we call it God's mission, God's way. Uh, because we, do not, we are not one of these churches that says we'll keep the message, but the means don't matter, right? The means can change through the years. Now, the Lord ordained the means, and so we're going to keep preaching the gospel, and we're going to keep gathering on Sundays because the Lord told us to do it that way. So in message and in means, we follow the Lord's instruction. Now, you might ask, well, does that mean that we don't clean the bathrooms because it doesn't say to clean the bathroom in the Bible? <laughs> no, the Bible says love your neighbor and so we pay someone to clean the bathrooms to make sure that they are clean. Well, does that mean that you don't you know, take care to make sure your building is well kept? And Well, no, it's biblical wisdom. I, it says I passed by the field of the sluggard and behold, it was covered in weeds. That's what the Proverbs say. So biblical wisdom we follow. But it does mean that everything we do in church ministry, we can trace back to the commands of God and say we're doing this because the Bible says to do this right here. Even for simple things like changing out light switches and choosing our music style and picking the sign out front and things like that, they all fall back to the means that God gave us. So that's what we do. We use the means God gave us to grow our church. What we don't do is compromise with the worldliness around us in the way that Abraham and Sarah did in the way that, God, that Isaac and Rebecca did not. Here's a little window into that. We can look back at Abraham's practice of taking a slave wife to bear children for his wife. And I don't think I have to convince any of you that that's abominable, do I? No, we, I think we see that. Several thousand years later, you can look back at another culture and see its problems very easily. But for them, walking around in that day, all the sins of the day felt normal to them. And so it was harder for them to see just what they were getting into when they started compromising with the world. There's an old phrase to, to a fish. What is it to a fish? Everything is wet. You know, like fish don't even realize they're swimming in the water. I wish I hadn't gone there because I can't remember what the phrase is. So I'm just going to leave that there. Okay. So does anybody remember what I'm talking about? What is it? Okay. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> no one's ever heard that phrase. Okay. Uh, so to us, we need to realize that there are going to be people in maybe 50 or 100 years who look back and watch our Thursday night sitcoms and say, I can't believe people were entertained by that. Oh, right? Just like we look back at Abraham and Sarah and say, I can't believe they did that. We look back at 1830 United States and say, I can't believe slavery was legal then. Right? People will look back on us for our culturally acceptable sins and say, I can't believe that they did that. But for us, walking around and Thursday comes once a week and we're just kind of used to turning on the TV and doing what we do and you're just living life, right? Everything just feels normal. You can't necessarily smell the stench of the sin around you anymore because you've gone nose blind to it. And so sometimes we start wading into the world's tactics when it comes to church growth and mixing the gospel of Jesus with the culturally acceptable and the respectable sins around us. Here are some examples of that. Uh, I heard recently about a, a missionary far overseas uh, who is serving the gospel in a, in a remote island place where there were multiple people groups who did not like each other. Right? Somewhat like the States, I guess, multiple people groups who don't always like each other, except there were thousands of years of animosity and hatred between these different groups. And the gospel was successfully going to all of these groups. People in all these groups were coming to Christ. But because there was so much animosity between the groups, they chose intentionally to have separate churches for each one. And at one point, a missionary led a person to Christ and then said to him, okay, but you can't go to my church because my church is for these kind of people. You got to go to, to that church. You see the problem? with It's easy to see the problem with that from afar, isn't it? But when you're deep in that culture, you don't realize what you're doing. Another example, a little bit closer to home, has been talked about in the media a lot lately. You might be, uh, you might be familiar with it, but up in Seattle, Washington, uh, there's a very big church named Mars Hill Church and a pastor named Mark Driscoll. Uh, and essentially what happened there in, in the 1990s, Seattle was very, you know, it was grunge culture. It was Nirvana, it was Green Day, it was punk rock, and there was this spirit of angst, rebelliousness, uh, a hatred for people older than you and for authority. Uh, men often despised women because guys like Kurt Cobain were kind of heroes. And also this sense of like despair and darkness lingering over the whole thing. That was Seattle culture and that was cool. And so a church planner named Mark Driscoll essentially took those elements, those kind of respectable sins of Seattle culture, added the gospel to them, and preached essentially in a way that was full of angst, full of rebellion. He was crude. He made sexual humor jokes often in his sermon. He cussed in his sermons. He preached in a way that was degrading to women. It was like this combo of Kurt Cobain and the gospel all together. And Seattle loved it. The church filled up with people that grew so quickly. But by the end, 10, 15, 20 years later, the whole thing fell apart and all those people, no, many of those people, some of them very much redeemed, many of those people were left right where they started, full of angst, full of darkness, sad, just where they were before the gospel found them. Well, what happened? Well, they took the true gospel of Jesus 
and mixed it with culturally acceptable sins and let that be the platform for ministry. When you do that, people hear, hey, I can follow Jesus and I don't have to turn from my sins. And it's a pretty popular idea, isn't it? So that's what that might look like far away. There's a whole lot more to that story, but that's one, one thread that goes through it. What would that look like here? Well, what are the culturally acceptable sins in Greenwood? I could think of a few. One would probably be pursuit of the good life over and above the kingdom of heaven. Many Christians even in Greenwood who would hear Jesus' words, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, these other things are added unto you, and would say, okay, that's a good word, and then would really want to just keep seeking success and the good life. So much that you often want to make church kind of an ancillary part of the good life. That's certainly one of them. There seem to be political camps developing in our city, really on both sides, with almost a religious enthusiasm. If you, uh, if you ever see a pride parade, uh, you can see the rainbow flags waving, and you can see a religious fervor in those gatherings. And sometimes you see the same at conservative political gatherings, too. Some Trump rallies have a r religious fervor to them as well. There is so much religion mixed into that now, and oftentimes, I have to say, political idolatry that happens on both sides, almost a syncretism of the gospel with politics, that the truth is, if we wanted to grow really fast, you know what we could do? Either put a rainbow flag up there, we'd be full next week if we did that, or throw a Trump rally in the parking lot. Next Sunday, man, this place would be full. But we would wind up in five, 10, 20 years leaving people just where they were because we had mixed the preaching of the gospel with the, the culturally acceptable sins in the area. Another big one is the worship of celebrity culture. Many people really all over the United States, uh, just, we just love our celebrities so much and we'll let them get away with so much more than we will let other people get away with. We could play to that as a church if we wanted to. We could get some other pastor in here who looks cool like a celebrity, you'd have to get rid of me to do it because I can't play the part. But we get somebody else in here, get him surrounded by a bunch of groupies and have cameras follow him around over the place and give him a big media platform and just start acting like he's a celebrity, right? And people are drawn to that. There's a magnetism to that. But it's not honest in the church because we're coming to, to worship a guy and not coming to worship Jesus. So we're mixing the culturally acceptable sins with the preaching of the gospel. When it comes to that pursuit of the good life over the kingdom of heaven, well, we could play to that too. We could make every marketing strategy, every teaching, every sermon about you know, practical teaching to help you live a good life, have more success at your job, and have a better marriage. There's good words for that in the Bible. There's also a lot of confrontational words and a lot of stuff telling us to seek the kingdom of heaven first. We could leave all that stuff out, just give them the practical stuff, and people would flock to that because it would help them pursue the good life over relationship with Jesus Christ. So do you see how it would be easy for us to find the culturally acceptable sins in the area, cater to those, continue preaching the gospel, and we would probably see some good short-term growth from that. The Lord says, I already gave you the means to grow a church. Preach the gospel. Gather on Sundays. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. 
Walk in biblical wisdom. This, he says, is how you grow a church. And so our first point then is to use the means that he gave and not to dabble in worldly tactics for church growth. Now that first point largely talks about the natural things that we do, you know, with our hands here in the world, the strategies, the ways we're thinking like that. There is a whole nother level of spiritual weapons the Lord has given us, right? Our battle's not against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual thing we're doing. And so for the next point, we go into the supernatural means that God has given us. Uh, To find this, we need to note that in verse 21, Isaac is... 40 years old when he marries his wife. I may have that. That's in verse 20, I'm sorry. Isaac is 40 years old when he marries his wife. And at the end of verse 26, which we did not read today, we find out how old Isaac was when she has the children. It says Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. You do the math, that's 20 years of marriage before the children come. So Isaac didn't just put his hand on Rebecca's shoulder and pray for her once. He had to pray for 20 years before the Lord did this great and mighty work. And so our second point then is when seeking kingdom growth, pray persistently. I would argue that is the most powerful weapon we have in growing our church, persistent prayer. And it's the one thing that I pray really sticks from this sermon and from this past week. If we can look back six months from now, and said, the Lord has made us a praying church. Look how many people are gathering to pray. Look how eager we are to pray. If the Lord would be pleased to do that through Isaac's example here, how glad I would be. So that's important because this is a pattern that the Lord does many times in Scripture. It may look like I'm just pulling a little detail and making too much of it out of it here. But look at the pattern. There is a period of waiting that feels like it's longer than it should be, right? It shouldn't take 20 years to do that, so there's a period of waiting. There is persistent prayer and then a mighty work of God conceiving the nation of Israel in Rebecca's womb. So waiting, persistent prayer, mighty work. That's the pattern. Okay. Several hundred years later, Jacob's descendants, that's the baby that's about to be born, Jacob's descendants will be slaves in Egypt and they will cry out to the Lord for 400 years as slaves. And it'll say in Exodus 1 and 2 that the Lord, after 400 years, heard their cry. It came up to them and God saw and God heard. So you got the 400 years of waiting. God, how long is it going to be? You got the persistent prayer. And then the Lord doesn't just let them go from Egypt. He does a mighty work with the Exodus. He raises up Moses, brings Moses in, rains down plagues of terror upon Egypt. The people of Israel are allowed to go, but they're taken up to the Red Sea as the army is chasing them and the Red Sea parts open, they walk through it, they get to the other side, they look back and see the Red Sea crash upon the very people who had abused them as slave masters. And the text says that they looked at all of the dead bodies and all of the horses on the shore and they feared before God. They said, this God is mighty. And they sang a song of victory to him. All right, so long waiting, persistent prayer, mighty work of God. 
In the book of Judges, it happens many times. God's people fall under defeat and oppression from enemies. They cry out to God. God raises up a judge and does a mighty work through him. Years later, we've talked about this recently, a woman named Hannah will go many years of marriage without bearing any children. And she will keep praying and they will go to the temple and they will pray there every year. And then finally the priest prays over her too and says, may the Lord grant your request. Uh, So you got the the waiting, you got the persistent prayer. And then she does conceive and bear a child, but it's not just a child, it's Samuel, the greatest of the judges, the last judge, the great and mighty prophet, the one that installs David as king. So you got waiting, you got persistent prayer and you've got a mighty work of God. King David was anointed king, but then hunted by the one that was on the throne for years. He had to wait and was on the run. And he he spouted out, I don't know, like maybe 50 psalms during this time of just crying out to God for help. So you've got the waiting for him and the persistent prayer while he is hunted by Saul. And then the Lord raised him up to the throne and worked mightily through him to defeat all of Israel's enemies. Later on, The prophets go silent for 400 years. The prophet Micah predicts it and it happens. And then, after much praying and God, we're under foreign occupation and and are you still even listening? What is going on? They pray persistently. And the Lord visits Zechariah and says, your wife in her old years is gonna bear you a son and he's gonna be a prophet and he's gonna pave the way for my greater one. He's gonna pave the way for my son who will come live die and rise to save his people from their sin. So even in the coming of Christ, you have long waiting, persistent prayer, and God doing the mightiest work of all. The pattern gets more specific after that. Jesus is about to leave, and he tells his disciples, stay here and wait until I pour my spirit out upon you. And so you know what they do? They go to the upper room And they just pray together until it happens. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. They're in the upper room, people of many nations gathered, and the Spirit falls down upon them in Pentecost. Waiting, persistent prayer, gathered together this time, and then the Spirit is poured down. Three chapters later in Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested They are released and they go back to the church and they find the church praying. And so they gather together and they pray persistently that the Lord would give them boldness, right? Can you imagine if you just got arrested for preaching the gospel, your boldness would be threatened. So they pray, God, give us boldness through your spirit. They're gathered together like this and it says the spirit came down upon them as well. So you got waiting, persistent prayer and the spirit falling. And it happens again in Acts 13. They're waiting They are praying together, gathered, and the Spirit says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas to send upon this journey, and Paul and Barnabas go and lead many people to Christ and start many churches on their journey. Okay, I wore it out, I know, but you got the point, right? Waiting, persistent prayer, and then a mighty work of God. In the New Testament, it's waiting, persistent prayer, and the outpouring of God's Spirit. We've been waiting What do we need to do now? Pray persistently, right? And what happens next? Mighty outpouring of God's spirit. This is what Jesus teaches in Luke 11, actually. Right after the passage I preached last week, I'm just gonna read to you what he says. Which of you who has a friend 
will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, don't bother me, the door's shut, my children are with me in bed, I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, right, because of his persistence, he will rise up and give him whatever he needs. I tell you then, ask, it'll be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So if we pray persistently, what does our Father give to us in great measure? The Holy Spirit. If we want to see that Spirit poured down on us, there's one thing we must do, persistently pray. The disciples one time, they were, they'd been given authority by Jesus to cast out demons. And he sent them out on a, on a journey. So, okay, I give you authority to cast them out and go, go out. And they go out. And they have success in a lot of, they cast out a lot of demons. They lead a lot of people to Jesus. And then there's one person they can't cast the, the demon out of. And they're like, well, wait a minute. He gave us authority to do this and we're doing it and it's not working. What's going on? And so they take the man to, to Jesus. They bring the two together. And they're like, Lord, it's not working. We can't get the, the demon out of this man. What, what's wrong? And Jesus actually gets frustrated. We don't see him get frustrated much. He says, you faithless generation, how long do I have to put up with you, right? It doesn't sound like Jesus, but he does. He gets frustrated with him. And then Jesus goes over, casts the demon out, and they're like, Lord, what, what's up? Like, how come you can do it? You gave us authority to do it. Why can't we do it? And what he says is so important. He says, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. What does that, what does that mean the disciples forgot to do they didn't pray, and that's why it didn't work. And that's why the Lord grows weary and frustrated and says, oh, guys, all you have to do is, is pray. When, when we are in a situation somewhat like what we are in now, we just, don't we just long to see this place grow? Oh, so we do. And have we, we've been praying for it for so long. And, and, and my first year, we prayed for revival very often. We prayed for it through the pandemic. And we look and we say, Lord, we asked for revival and you gave us a pandemic. What's, what, what's happening? Uh, there are many in the church who are praying persistently. Uh, and what does the Lord say we must do? We must pray persistently, right? Knock and the door will be opened. Seek and we will find. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Jesus came down, God made man, to die in the place of our sins if we would trust in him. That message is available to you. I call you to trust in him for forgiveness of your sins. For those of you that do, my call to you, the church, is keep knocking, keep seeking, keep asking. If we do this persistently enough, the Lord says, I am going to send my spirit down. That means it's not a matter of will he do it or not. It's a matter of will we continue to be persistent. And so my call to you, church, is let's pray persistently for the Spirit of God. Shall we do it right now? Yeah, let's do it right now.